Understanding that weird book of Revelation, part 17, and this is, uh, I need to make probably a little bit of a review because it's been, I had two Sunday nights when we were away, and we had just started looking at Revelation chapter 14, the title then and continued, but don't worry, I'll give a little bit of a catch up kind of a thing. Assurance for Christians, when the world faces the fire of God's coming end time judgment. And because we've been away from the text for a while, I'm not just trying to kill time, but I think it's important maybe just to read these verses so you pick up kind of where we are, and then I'll make some comments, tying it into where we studied uh, the last time we were together. So Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, And with him, 144,000. And even if you don't remember exactly all the details, you should at least say to yourself, wait a minute, I heard that number before. And you did. It was in Revelation chapter 7. Those who refused to worship the beast and, and, and who remain true to the Lord, and they're sealed, they're protected, 144,000. We talked about the significance of that number. I'm not going into it again. But this is the second time you're seeing it. Only now... He's looking into the future. Uh, They're already assembled, standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. That hasn't happened yet in the book, but he's getting this prequel, a look, to give him assurance. They're all there, cared for, protected. All right. On Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him, as though Jesus had already come back, the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters. So John, he's relaying what he sees, what he hears in these visions, and it's hard for him to do it. Like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on harps. And you feel like saying, make up your mind, John. Loud thunder, harps, like... And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except 144,000 who had been redeemed. Now we know who these people are. They're redeemed from the earth. The new song is, is uh, the song of salvation, the song of redemption. You can't learn it. It's, it's given through Christ. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women. They are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. So there's, there's sexual purity. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found. Honesty, integrity, they are blameless. And I saw another angel flying directly overhead with, with an eternal gospel to proclaim. The gospel proclaim. To those who dwell on the earth. To every nation, tribe, language, people. So there's still mercy. There's still grace. There's still a chance to repent. This angel, he said with a loud voice, Fear God. Give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. But that's not the whole story. Verse 8, another angel, a second followed saying fallen fallen is babylon the great he's going to talk about this tonight she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality 
and another angel, a third, followed them. That's these first two angels. Saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? There's, a, there's a, some kind of consciousness here. It's not just like an incinerator smoke burning things up. It's, it's the smoke of their, it's their torment. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest. See, so, so this isn't annihilation. There's a, there's a, there's a torment. There's a, a fatigue, like really, really wanting to sleep and you can't. They have no rest day and night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, who, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So he's seeing all of this. And then I heard a voice, John says, from heaven saying, write this. Okay, so this isn't just for John. That's the point here. Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. So, so those who worship the beast, remember we just read, they have no rest day and night. And now you see these, that they may rest from their labors. For their deeds follow them. And then I looked, there's more. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and, and seated on the cloud, one like the son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle, gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe and so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God and the wine press was trodden outside the city blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle this is his vision this is what he sees for 1600 stadia quick recap of where we are. We are at what I'm calling an interlude. If you can think back, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls all go right up to the end of the book of Revelation. We are, since Revelation 12, I'll talk about it, we are at an interval between the sounding of the seventh trumpet 
and the pouring out of the seven bowls of God's wrath. Remember, the seven trumpets are in the seventh seal. The seven bowls are in the seventh trumpet. So just as the seventh trumpet is about to sound and the bowls of God's wrath are going to be poured out suddenly, cataclysmically, at the very end of the age, we get this pause. It's it's not a pause in the action. It's not as though everything's going to stop, but it's a pause in the visions. John can only see so many things at the same time. And so Revelation 12 is in this pause. Um, The big theme there, I'm just oversimplifying, is we get this dragon, the red dragon, wanting to devour the man-child, the Messiah. And we're told, this is one of the things we're told, that's Satan. We get this revelation of Satan in 12. 13, you get this revelation of the beast who comes up, the horns, quite a graphic image. And the reason there's this pause in the visions is so John gets the message. So all of these things, judgment, he sees it all happening. What do you think we will see? If you're here, how do you picture the events of Revelation unfolding? You will never see a red dragon about to gobble up a baby. You will never see a beast coming up out of the sea with ten horns and eyes. You're not going to see that. John's given, John's given this vision of realities that are, that are going to manifest themselves in the last days. And it works something like this. Here's the way I have defined it when we've been going through the studies. So you, you have this picture of Satan. So John will see in these visions, you see armies, you see battles, you see all sorts of struggles, you see... All these events happening. And, and, and the reason there's this pause, Revelation 12, this red dragon who we're told is the devil, that's, that's the Lord's way of revealing to John, don't get confused as to the nature of this struggle. Antichrist is going to come on the scene. I picture that and described it. I think it relates to Daniel chapter 9. Antichrist uh, represents Political structures, kingdoms organized against Christ. The beast, we looked at it in Revelation 13. He's the one who prompts people to worship Antichrist. Um, he, he, he causes, so there's political, political structures against Christ. There are religious structures against Christ. But you're not going to see a beast with ten horns, and you're not going to see a red dragon. But John's being shown these things, so he'll understand when it looks like just the ordinary course of events intensifying. You hear people all the time like, how can this be? How can people not see this? You get even small degrees of that now, don't you? You watch the news and you think, how how can people be so godless? Haven't you ever wondered that? And, And so what John is seeing in these visions is, Satan is behind this. Political structures organized against God and against Christ. Religious structures organized to draw worship away from Christ to any other God, anything else to worship. Babylon. Babylon represents uh, 
what we're told. Like her, her, she's described in these kind of graphic sexual terms. Immorality, leading people into sin, temptation. And what, what you see there is this. Whatever political structures are organized against Christ, whatever religious structures are designed to draw away worship from Christ, you will always need something to make sin look attractive. That's Babylon. So these power structures and then a a seducing power to lead people into false loves, corruption, And, and you, you, get, you, you think of things like, like the whole entertainment industry. There are people who stayed home from church tonight, and they're watching those idiots who, who, who dress up and clap and applaud themselves for, for the kind of movies that they make. See, that, that's Babylon. It's Babylon. And people will be drawn into it. So these are the kind of structures that get set up during this interlude. Revelation 12, Revelation 13, Revelation 14. Now, here's where we were last time we were together. We saw two things from Revelation 14. First, we saw the sealing and the protecting of that 144,000. They are viewed as already on Mount Zion with the Lamb. It's like it's already happened, and that is, that is God's visionary grace showing John. Don't panic, John. Look, here's, here's the end result. That's what he sees. The second thing that we talked about in our last time together was this proclamation of the gospel still designed to lead people to repentance, even at this late time. So now we're right up to speed. We're going to pick up and we'll, we'll go fast. So point one and two we did last time together. The sealing, the protecting, that's point number one. The proclamation of the gospel of grace, even at this last moment, that was point number two. In Revelation 14, and this is point number three. There's this quick prediction of the fall of Babylon and her corruption. John sees these future events. Babylon will not be destroyed until you get to Revelation 17 and 18. But in this interlude of visions, he's seeing things as though they've already happened, like a prequel. Babylon isn't to be interpreted as any one actual city, I don't believe, or any one actual location. I think it's a a symbolic picture of the construction of a worldly system that in mass lures mankind into immorality, compromise, and idolatry. I mean, Babylon throughout the Old Testament, it just became symbolic for the ultimate enemy of God's people. Because whatever power structures arise in the last days against Christ, you will always need something to, to cause people to justify wickedness, to embrace it, to love it, without feeling wicked about loving it. That's, that's Babylon's job. The Apostle Peter, it's interesting to me, uses the name Babylon to refer to the persecution that his readers, Peter's readers, were receiving from ancient Rome. Babylon had been off the scene for centuries. 
they're experiencing Roman persecution. But look at the way Peter describes it in 1 Peter 5, 18 to 13. He writes to these Christians, and the Holy Spirit applies it to us today. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Look it. She who is at Babylon, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Most scholars see Peter's reference to Babylon, which had been in ruins for many years as a cryptic reference to the dominating power of Rome at that time. And some there had already come to Christ. And Peter relays greetings. So Babylon is this picture, a biblical picture of the civilizations that have generated hatred for Christ and are the source of idols this world puts in his rightful place. We'll, we'll look at it again when we get to Revelation 17. Point number four. The doom of the worshipers of the beast. Look at verses 9 to 13. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark in his forehead or on his right hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and, and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And so we're meant to see a parallel. Look at how this works. <clears throat> a parallel in the structure here. John paints this contrast between the present work of Babylon the Great. It says, she who made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Okay, so it, it's, like, it's like people getting drunk on just pleasure, godless pleasure. And, and very cleverly in this vision, there's this, this parallel structure about the coming wrath of God. He also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his anger. So, so that the, 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 the people who, who uh, blindly and rebelliously drink of the cup of pleasure of Babylon will drink of the cup of God's wrath. And it's exactly the same picture used in both cases. 
Notice how John compares the two destinies and the idea of rest. I mentioned it earlier, where it says in 14.11 and 14.13, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest. With, with the followers of the Lamb, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. So, so as... I said before that as the end time draws near, you have this splitting up into two separate groups. Don't worry about what the mark of the beast is or what 666 means. That's not the point. You have the 144,000, this picture of God's people, the church, and they're marked. You have the followers of Antichrist, and they are marked. And so what, what that means to me is this. As the, the years roll by and we get closer and closer to the end. Whatever camp you're in, it's going to be obvious. That's the point. You, you can function now. You can function now, kind of all of us, very comfortably. We can sort of whittle our way through the various kingdoms of Christ and this world. And you can fit in in both groups quite easily. And what, what John sees in these visions is that's coming to an end. Like, whatever crowd you pick, it's going to be obvious what crowd you're in, and there's going to be a price to pay, whichever crowd you're in. So, so it, there, there comes a, a dividing of humanity. Nowhere is that more vividly pictured than point number five. You get these two harvests. It's in 14 through, 14 through 20. One of them, uh, a white cloud seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, a golden crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand. And then this angel comes out, says, put in your sickle, reap. The hour to reap has come. The harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So you had this gospel presented not that long ago, an angel shouting the gospel, still urging people to repent. But now the time, now is the time sickle harvest there there won't be any more proclamations there won't be any more gospel there won't be any more chances and so he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle 16 across the earth the earth was reaped you get a picture of this instantaneous action and then of course the other another angel 18 came out from the altar i want to talk about that in a minute an angel who had authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle. Gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth. Swung his sickle across the earth, gathered the grape harvest of the earth, threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. It's exactly the same. I won't take time to read it. But you, it's exactly the same thing where, where um, Jesus, Jesus in his parable about the end of the age in Matthew 13, 24 to 30. I think I gave you a reference there. You can read it later on. But it's exactly the way Jesus described the end of the age and this idea of harvest. So the picture we get here is, is just one of God's absolute sovereign control over all the events of the future. These two harvests, they don't just happen, right? 
there's an angel behind each of them. Now, now is the time. And the Son of Man harvests. And then another angel. Now is the time. And the harvest of God's wrath. But it's not like these things are just random. It's not like things just run, run out of control and wild from God's sovereignty. Events will come to term just the way the Lord says. The first gathering of the righteous unto the goal of their salvation. The second, the gathering of the wicked to be eternally punished for their unreasonable refusal of the gospel. Notice, notice that the judgment in John's vision, I said I wanted to talk about it. It's in verse 18. The judgment in, in, in John's vision, it seems somehow to come from under the altar. Look at 18. And another angel came out from the altar. See it? The angel who has authority over fire called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. Why under the altar? This angel comes from out from the altar and, you, and all of a sudden you go, wait a minute. Because we looked at this in Revelation chapter 6. Way back on the opening of the fifth seal, Revelation 6, 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. There's hundreds of thousands of people who have been slain for their faith in Christ. And we get this picture of these souls under the altar. This is still happening today. These people who have lost their lives, we haven't. We didn't even have to come to church that regularly. Like, it's easy. But these souls who have lost their lives and they're praying, they're praying. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told, rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Why the wait? Why, why have more Christians killed? And then finally this prayer gets answered. We haven't seen that yet. It will be. And this angel who, who instructs the wrath of God, this angel who comes and says, put in your sickle, the grapes, throw them into the winepress of God's wrath. That hasn't happened yet. It's still waiting. People still suffer for their faith. They're still being martyred for their faith. Why? Why doesn't God do something sooner? Clearly, clearly, the martyrdom of the saints was and is, it's intended by God to serve as a witness. You know what the Greek word martyr means? Witness. Next time you kneel and you pray, God, make me a witness, you probably don't mean that. But that's what the word means, literally. So the martyrdom of the saints then and now, it's intended by God to serve as a witness to the people of the earth. 
in your life and in mine and in countless suffering Christians around the world, the obedient devotion of saints when there's a price to be paid for devotion speaks loudly to onlookers. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes Romans, the great missionary to the Gentiles. And one of the things that one of the things that reached into Paul's hearts, do you remember? It's in the book of Acts. And he's standing there and he's watching as Stephen is stoned for his faith. And Stephen dies looking up to heaven. And Luke records, Paul is standing there holding the garments of these people who are hurling rocks at Stephen. And Paul sees it. Do you get it? Why does God allow Christians to to be martyred, to suffer, to be mocked? Lesser degrees, to, to be persecuted, to be misunderstood, to be slandered, to not have the same kind of friends. Why does he allow you opportunities to stick out like a sore thumb? You know why? Because he's merciful to the people of the earth. And they need to see a God who is not just blithered about in our words, but who means more to us than life itself. And that's not the indifference of God. And it's not things slipping out of his control that he's unable to help us. It's his grace being shown that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance before his wrath is finally poured out and it's too late. Let's pray.